couple weeks ago. We're going to be spending the next few months working through this gospel, um, just kind of chapter by chapter as we move forward. Luke, remember, is written in the in the mid '60s. It's it's written by a second generation believer, so we're roughly a generation um, past uh, the ascension of Jesus. He's um, Luke is looking to write an orderly account, is what he calls it. He's taking us from right before the birth of John the Baptist, right all the way through the early church, through Luke and Acts, um, that are that are really one book. And he's writing to Theophilus. I'm his patron, but also to the church um, and, and to us, right, saying, hey, I want to help you understand the whole story from the beginning to the end. I want it to be orderly. Um, I want you to understand because it will give you assurance. It'll give you confidence. It will root uh, and, and ground you in this. Because at this point, um, Gentiles um, that had come to faith and Jews, right, there was a, a struggle between Hey, is this is Christianity something separate from Judaism? Is it in it? And and people are asking the question. So Luke is looking to write this account that will show the thread all the way through. And so if you want to pick up with us in verse fifty-seven, we'll begin there. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, But none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We'll stop there for a moment. And so what, what Luke is doing is he's, he's just showing um, his, his kind of literary prowess right, that we've had the angelic visit to Zechariah and the promise of John the Baptist's birth, right, to an older couple. And then last week we had the angelic visit of Gabriel to Mary and the promise of Jesus' birth. And now we're going back um, to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and the birth of John. So these, these two in chapter 1 are just kind of be, being um, woven together, right, just as you're reading a, a good chapter book, right, the story is often jumping around a little bit to help you get to the same point at the same time for multiple characters. And so in, in, the, in the angelic vision um, that or encounter that Zechariah had in the temple with Gabriel, right? he was told earlier in chapter 1 a few things. One, that this older barren couple were going to have a baby. And not only would they have a baby, but it would be a son. And that they would name his name John and that many would rejoice at his birth, and that he would be in the spirit of Elijah preparing the way for the promised one, the Messiah. And because of Zechariah's lack of belief in, in asking for a sign, right, he was told, you'll be silent until the child comes. And so here, in this section of Luke, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of each of these things, right? That the joy of the neighbors and the relatives and the friends in the area because this older, godly, pious, respected couple is finally having a baby, right? You can imagine the joy 
in the excitement, whether or not they, they saw it as being the forerunner of the Messiah or not, it's that someone we love who has desperately wanted a child is having a child. And so there would have been much um, excitement and enthusiasm and celebration um, as, as this child is now coming. And so as they're around, and, and Zechariah's been pretty silent now for nine months, right? They're talking to Elizabeth primarily and going, okay, what are, what are we going to name this child? Um, and because they're an older couple, um, they're going, hey, do we want to name him after Zechariah? What relative? She said, we're going to call him John. Right? Uh, that's not customary. No one in your family's named John. And so they look to Zechariah, expecting him to correct her, to say, yeah, let's, I mean, Zechariah's a pretty good name. And do you notice as he writes, he doesn't say his name will be. He says his name is John. Right? Like that, that Zechariah has become, right, he's convinced that what the Lord is doing. He says, like, his name is John. This is John. That he has moved from being a doubter to a believer at this point. And so people are, are stunned and they're amazed. And in that moment, right, we've seen, okay, it's a son has been born, this older parent couple. His name is John. People are rejoicing. And at this point, Zechariah's tongue is loosened and he begins to talk. And so because of that, right, there's, there's um, kind of fear, right? This anticipation of, okay, what is going on here? This is not a typical birth. What is happening because there has been some 400 plus years of silence from kind of the end of the Old Testament to now. And yet there's the expectation that the Messiah is coming, that God is going to work. And yet generations have come and gone. So as a kid, um, we lived out south of town just a little bit. And whenever we would have family come when we were little, we could see across the, a field out to a, the highway. And there would be times where my, my sister and I would get up and we'd go, and watch, right, and see if we could see our family coming down this highway across the field. Now, the issue was we weren't always, like, asking around the right time. It was like we might get up at 8 o'clock and go, look, you know, and they're not coming until that night. And so we'd get tired of watching. And, you know, and you'd go do something, and you'd come back, and you're like, okay, can we, can we see? And we'd get pull binoculars out, and, well, what color car do they have? We would try to watch. Folks, for 400-plus years, a nation has been watching and waiting. And you can imagine how little, as, as much as we were anticipating the arrival of family, we didn't wait very long, right? Like our patience didn't last very long, and we were off doing other things. And so for 400 years, a people have been passing down and recounting the stories and the faithfulness of God. It's, it's why the Passover and different festivals and feasts were so important, because they're like, here's why we do this. Because God did this then, and he's promised to do something else. Right? They're passing it on generation after generation, waiting, anticipating, expecting something more. And now, here you have this kind of miraculous thing happening. This older couple's having a baby. John's tongue, or, um, Zechariah's tongue has been tight, and so now it's been loose. Right? And you can anticipate, like, there's some fear, there's some excitement, there's some un un unusual circumstances, and the people, it says... They just begin to talk about it. And the whole area is talking about it. And they're wondering, what's going to happen? Like, what is this child going to be? But what Luke is already showing us, he's, he's, he's affirming the crowd and saying, we should be asking that question too. What is it that God is up to here? 
And do you see that God is already keeping His word? It was a boy. Zechariah was silent. His name is John. People are rejoicing. He's reminding us God keeps His word. And so as Zechariah's tongue begins to speak, we're going to pick up in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. All right, so Zechariah, until this moment, has been quiet for nine months. Right, we we saw last week that Elizabeth maybe threw just a little bit of critique on him when she was commending Mary for her immediate faith and belief, right? You can imagine that coming out of this um, situation, Zechariah probably would like to defend himself. He probably has some things he would like to say about, hey, have you seen an angel? Right? Right? Like, I mean, like the, he probably would want to comment, but he can't. And so when you have been called on the carpet, right, and you tip, typically tend to want to talk to defend yourself, here he is quiet. He has no choice but to, to stew and to reflect, and to consider. Because he's been silent. He can't, he's been silent. He couldn't defend himself. So he's had time to think about this. Like, what am I going to say? And then not only that, but he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is going to begin to, to worship and to prophesy here. But before we get into the, to the, to what he says, I, I, I want to remind us of this. Listen, um, we often trust or don't trust the character of someone based on their past track record, right? It's based on what they have or have not done is the reason that we would believe someone or, or believe in their character, right? Think about this as, as a parent or a grandparent, right? If you're in the pool and you're trying to teach your toddler like it's safe to jump in, right? You're often looking back and saying, I've done it before and you didn't drown, right? Or you're po- pointing to something else that you've asked them to do that they weren't sure of and you were there for them, okay? Like you're looking and saying, look, I've been good, or I've been honest, or I've been faithful, or I've caught you. You're looking to past action to prove to them you can trust me right now in this moment. The issue is, is we're, we're imperfect, right? So we don't always come through in the clutch. Um, so a few years ago, I take uh, Carmen and Carson and little bitty Jude to a carnival, and Carson is like five or six. She's not very old. And there's this ride, and as I see it, I think I understand what the ride does. And I begin to use my past 
good character in Carson's life to encourage her that she should try this ride. I'm, I can't ride it, but you can ride it, and you should. And it would be great for you to ride it. And so she believes me and gets on, and it's like a, a what's the word am I? A hang glider. Yes, thank you. This hang glider. And it looks like it only goes up a few feet, and it just kind of spins around. <laughs> Carmen is vehemently trying to encourage me not to put her on this ride. Like, pleading. And I'm like, I don't understand. It goes up like 10 feet. It's, she's fine. She's ex- kind of excited, a little nervous. Carmen is emphatic that this is a really bad idea. Carson gets on it. It goes up 10 feet. It's spinning around. She's laughing. I'm like, see, this is awesome. What were you so worried about? And then it has a second level, level, and it goes up substantially higher. And so now my nerve, I'm like, oh, I did not see that it did that. And now it begins to spin fast. And I'm watching my little girl in this hang glider that feels like she was just barely at the line where she could have gotten on it and we're at a carnival, and I'm regretting like all of my life's decisions at this point. And thinking like, if, like, and I'm like trying to talk to the guy, like, hey, man, like, I'll pay for everyone. Like, stop it. Like, let it, like, let it go. And he's not really wanting to do that. And I'm like, am I going to have to fight this guy? And then I'm trying to position myself to catch her because I'm pretty sure she's going to come flying out of it. And she's too scared to scream, right? She's just kind of gritting her teeth. And Carmen's looking at me like, did you not believe me? Right? So Carson did survive that. She came down. Carmen and I have also survived it. Um, we'll see about this afternoon, if, so now that I've brought it back to everyone's attention. Um, I, so in the, in the days and months after that, I've had to repair, right, Carson's trust in my good decision-making, right? So I've been there for her. I've also failed mightily, right? And so she has to now, like, weigh, Do I tr- is this a carnival thing, or is, is this, like, no, dad's good, and he's there for me thing, right? Like, she's had to, to grow in her discernment, okay? We don't have to do that with the Lord. God is faithful. And when he keeps his word, and when he meets us in the past, right, it, it gives us confidence that he will again do that in the future. And that is what Zechariah is going to do here. And just let's look at a few of the phrases he says here. Blessed, he just begins to worship be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Now listen, in the Old Testament, when God visited, it was one of two things. It was either gracious and good, or it was a judgment. Right? It was one or the other. Right? And, and, and so in Exodus, we saw both. Right? That when, when God came and rescued His people out of Pharaoh's hand, it was gracious for the people of Israel and for any who put the blood across their door. Right? But it was judgment on those who would oppose God. That when God visits His people, it's either gracious or it's judgment, right? And and so he's what we notice here is that Zechariah is no longer asking for a sign of like, are we sure that my son's the forerunner and that the Messiah is coming? He talks about this now in past tense. He's so sure it's going to happen. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited. He's talking now of this, like yes, God has visited. God is going to visit us now. This is happening now. And in this, he's going to say, like, redemption is coming. A gracious visit. But you'll notice that he also mentioned enemies being defeated, that there is judgment 
and grace in this visitation as well. That it is going to stay with the Old Testament pattern pattern of graciousness and judgment coming in visits. He goes on in the next verse, in verse 69, and He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. This is a strange phrase, the horn of salvation. What it's referring to is the horn of like a wild ox, right? This, this, this beast of a cow that would be out there that would gore other animals, right? And could kill them. It's how they would defend themselves. This horn of salvation is a, is a symbol of strength, of victory, of might. It's why in the Psalms, you'll see David refer to the horn of our salvation often when he has been delivered from the hands of Saul by God. He's saying, you are the horn of my salvation. It wasn't by my hands or my might. It was by your hands and your might that you've done this. That our enemies are going to be destroyed because of your horn. Like your horn is going to save us and rescue us. You're not asking us to save ourselves. The third is that it's salvation. Now listen, they would have heard this and assumed primarily a political rescue, right? A political rescue, because it's what God did in Exodus when He freed the people from Egypt. They now have um, overseers here, even though they're in their homeland, Rome is in charge. And so they're hoping, right, to have um, Jewish men who are cruel and oppressive over them and Roman men who are cruel and oppressive over them overthrown. They're looking for redemption and rescue and salvation and asking God to do once again what He's done. But Zechariah lets this end. This isn't just going to be political. Look down to verse 77. Our salvation to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. He's not merely talking about overthrowing the government. He's saying there's another kind of salvation, another kind of redemption that is necessary, that is going to be spiritual in nature. So it's going to have both a political and a spiritual element to it. The fourth thing, um, it, so, as, so verse 70, He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies, the hands of those who hate us. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Mercy, right? Mercy is compassion or forgiveness that's shown when it's in that person's power to punish, right? So it's saying it's receiving what we don't deserve instead of what we do deserve, that God, who has the ability to discipline or to punish us, doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us compassion, forgiveness, gentleness. That's what mercy is. And so, when after the exodus occurred, they would often look back to it to be reminded of God's character. This is Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 18 and 19. Because the nation of Israel would continue to face stronger nations in difficult circumstances. So beginning, I'll start in verse 17 of chapter, uh, chapter 7. If you say in your heart, God's speaking to His people, these nations are greater than I, how can we dispose of them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you'll remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So the Lord your God will do to all the peoples of whom you're afraid. Right? Like one of the things that they would do, they would remind themselves of the mercy of God. 
that God has rescued them before, that He has freed them before, that He has been good. And so when Scripture says that God is merciful, it's when God acts. It's when He moves. It's when He does something. It's loving action on our behalf. There's a second moment in the Old Testament where they would look back to. This is in Genesis 15, right? Abraham is being called to be the father of the nation of Israel. And he's going to make a covenant with God. And in, in, in this day and age, how a covenant would be made, animals would be taken and sacrificed and split side by side. And they would make like a path. And the weaker of the two nations, the weaker of the two kings, would walk in a ceremony through the path of the blood and the death and the destruction. And, and what was being said by the stronger of the king to the weaker of the king, the stronger nation to the weaker of the nation is, hey, this promise that we've made, the covenant that we've made, if you fail to keep it, this is what I'll do to you. So it was very, like, very vivid. But in that moment in Genesis 15, God, who is the stronger party, He's the one that passes through. He's the one that passes through instead of the weaker party. He was not claiming oh, Abraham, you're so great, you'll do this to me. What he was saying was, Abraham, you're never going to be able to commit to, commit to the, the covenant. You're not going to be able to keep it. You will fail. And I'm not going to do this to you. It was a picture of the Gospel. It was a picture of Jesus coming on our behalf because God was saying, I'll keep it. And when you fail to keep it, I'll be crushed on your behalf. In Genesis 15, the mercy of God being shown to Abraham, the birth of a nation, in Exodus, the rescue of a people from the hand of Pharaoh. And so when Zechariah is prophesying, when he's worshiping, he says that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. He is looking back and saying, the character of God is good. And He has shown us mercy before. And if He has shown us mercy before, He'll show us mercy again. And he's, he's calling people to remember, to celebrate, to worship. He continues. The oath that He swore to our father Abraham, that's Genesis 15, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. Right? It says that God remembers when God remembers, it's not just cognitive. It's not just in his mind of like, oh yeah, yeah I should do that. The, the phrase God remembers in the Old Testament is always then to show us that he graciously, lovingly acts on our behalf. Right? We see it in Genesis 8, that God remembered Noah and those on the ark Right after the flood. of like He remembered them, and so he made the water subside by having the wind blow. We see it in 1 Samuel 1 that God remembered Hannah and so she was given right a child, Samuel. We see it in Genesis 30 that Rachel was remembered and so a child comes. In Exodus, we see it that God remembers His people and His promises and so He rescues and redeems them from being slaves. So when it says that God remembers, He hasn't forgotten. It's simply a phraseology to help us see that God is going to graciously, lovingly act and move on behalf of His people. And so Zechariah is saying, listen, the silence is over. God is remembering. He is acting. He is loving. And He is bringing mercy. Church, this morning, 
Luke is telling us God will do what He's promised to do because His character is good. And because He has done it, He will do it. He is loyal, faithful, gracious, and loving to His people who do not deserve it. And yet His character is strong and true and mighty and good. Let's continue. Look at verse 76. He, he shifts from kind of thinking about the character of God, of, of worshiping here, and he begins to speak about this child that he's most likely holding in his arms, or he's looking at Elizabeth holding John, and he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. saying, John, like what you're going to do is you're going to go before the Lord. You're the one, the forerunner. Not because I'm Zechariah and I'm your dad. Not because we're going to raise you to be that because God has said. Because this is a message from on high. It's who you are. It's what's going to happen. We see this um, promise in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We see it in Malachi 3.1 and in other places that there was this promise that one like Elijah would come and be the forerunner of the Messiah, um, the, the rescuer, our Savior, setting foot on the stage. But I think what's important for us to note here is not just that this is a fulfillment of prophecy, right? But that there's a need. If something needs to be prepared, it's because it's not currently in the state that it needs to be. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give a knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. So He's not just saying, we're here to prepare an army. You're here to train up the soldiers, so we're going to overthrow Rome. He's saying, in the forgiveness of their sins. Like you're going to prepare a nation who's expectantly waited on God to meet to them in this. He's like, they need to be prepared. Their hearts aren't ready. Their minds aren't ready. They've turned to their own ways. They've become religious. right? They're not necessarily trusting God in this. They need peace with God. There's a real need and a real darkness. Look at verse 79. What's coming is a light for those who will who sorry who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. They weren't aware of how desperate things were, of the darkness and the depth, the death that waited at their doorstep. The question for us this morning is that as well. Are we aware of the darkness around us? Are we aware of the darkness that's in us? Like, are we aware of our need that right that we are rebels and enemies of God without Jesus? That we can we can get along fine in the world, but that we have a, a problem that we can't sort out, that we can't fix, because we have opposed God. We have been rebels to God. We have been enemies of God, and we can't make that right. The picture again goes back to the Exodus where the people are there and they're slaves and they're crying out saying, God, don't forget us, rescue us. We're, we're, we're slaves to this mighty nation and we can't do anything about it. 
We can't overthrow our captors. Church, this morning, we cannot overthrow our sin apart from Jesus. And we live in a culture that can't overthrow their sin apart from Jesus. Now listen, we live in West Texas and things get skewed out here, right? And we, we try to baptize our language and we try to talk about religion in a way that's just like, ah, I think we're all good, right? Because we're, we're, we're in the Bible Belt. John is going to prepare the way for the people of God, the God that a nation that he called forth, that he built, that's had him speaking and sending prophets for generations to say, hey, your hearts are actually far from God and you need forgiveness of sin. Church, we live in an area that apart from the grace of God has been re- spiritualized and had religion wrapped around it and folks are far from God. They're in darkness. They're in the depth of their need. They're far from the Lord, and they think they're close to Him. That we are dead in our sins and have no means to get back to Him. And for the Lord to open your eyes to that is such a severe, glorious kindness. Because to go on and be indifferent to your need and your struggle is insane. And for the Lord to show you it, it can crush you in the moment, and then you're reminded, oh, no, no, but there's forgiveness of sin. Jesus has done something on our behalf. Right? This is the this is this moment setting forth on the stage. That there is hope that we don't have to be crushed any longer. It's like going to the doctor and revealing something really horrible going on. In the moment before that, you maybe thought everything was fine. It was just a regular routine checkup. Everything's good and everything's fine. And then you find out, oh no, I've got something that's killing me. And then they respond with, here's how we're going to deal with it. And there's hope. There is a severe kindness into having that sort of diagnosis. Because without knowing it, you're going to die. Now knowing that we can deal with it. It's severe in its kindness. When God reveals the depth and the weight and the depravity of your sin, that you are a rebel before God, that you're an enemy of God, there's a weight that oh, like overwhelms us. It's like, oh no, what am I going to do? I'm going to be crushed. That's why Mary or Zechariah will respond in fear when the holy angel is before them, let alone God. And yet, he says, you're going to give knowledge of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins. There's hope in this. He's not here to crush. He's here to rescue. And so would we be asking God in our time in Luke to give us eyes to not assume that we're good, but to give us eyes to see our desperate need so that we could find that mercy, that kindness from God. Because verse 78, so John's going to lead the way, and then this happens. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Mercy Mercy, right? Not getting what we deserve, but getting grace, compassion, love, forgiveness when we could be punished is going to be manifested. It's going to be shown in the life of Jesus. That Jesus will step forth in flesh, the fullness of God dwelling bodily in Him, manifesting mercy to us, right? Coming 
The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. He's saying those who right now are in darkness, who are on death's door, who have enemies that need to be gored, right? He's stepping forth and he's going to illuminate the whole situation. He's going to expose things and he's going to give us a, a path to follow that we will be guided by his light. And so the, the enemy is not just Rome. The enemy is sin. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is death. And the horn of salvation is going to gore all of them. It's going to put our enemies to open shame. And the cross and the resurrection are going to prove that death is no longer something we have to fear because the death of death was the death of Jesus. That our sins have been paid for by Jesus. So we don't have to fear that anymore. And that Satan has been put to open shame because he has been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. That horn of salvation is here. What Luke is doing is he's saying, Theophilus, church, be sure have certainty it is happening. Here it is beginning. I would encourage you this week, um, there's several passages in Isaiah that would be wonderful to read um, alongside this. Um, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 would be one of them. But I'm going to read a couple from you, for you as well. The first is, this is Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 8 why they would have had this hope and why they would have heard Zechariah here speaking on behalf of the Lord. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and the healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, and then shall light, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desire in scorched places, make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Right? Like what a beautiful passage is saying that listen, when you are imaging God, right? Like when there's this need and there's things that need to be rebuilt and things that need to be watered, God is going to speak, right? You're going to be able to call and cry and say, God, here I am, I need you, and He's going to answer you. When the light dawns, and Zechariah is saying the light is dawning. Church, we live in the age of the light that is dawned. This then is Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. He's saying there will be darkness, and then God will move. He will remember and He will act. And what was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, that they will be a blessing to all the world, to all the nations, will come to fruition in Jesus, setting foot at the right time, and the darkness will scatter because the light is here. Hope is here. Healing is here. Joy is here. And it's found in Jesus. And you can cry out and ask for help and receive it. And that is true for Luke and for Theophilus. In church, it's true for us this morning as well. That we are surrounded by darkness, but the light has come. And whether that darkness is overwhelming you personally or around you today, Jesus is here. And when you say, 
help and cry out, He will receive that and respond to that for your good and for His glory. It's what He's here to do because of the tender mercy of our God. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's inviting us to follow Him into Luke, into the rest of this Gospel, to see the person, the work, the life of Jesus, and what it will look like to image Him. Because, verse 74, when we have been delivered from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve Him, meaning God, without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days, we are called to respond with service and worship Those things do not save you. We are called to do those because we've been rescued. To image the character of our God, to be light, right? Reflecting His character and His goodness to the world around us for all our days, worshiping and serving our King as Mary did when she heard, as Zechariah did now, as Mary, or sorry, as Elizabeth did, we are to rejoice because the light has broke forth. So church, our call will be to follow Jesus and to walk in joy as we study Luke together. And so this morning, we're going to invite you to stand and to sing and to celebrate the fact that we can call out and the Lord will answer. Also, we have the Lord's Supper set up for you this morning. right? That we would be reminded that it's not our religious ability, our religious knowledge, our um, moral standard that rescues us this morning. We were in darkness. We were in death, right? We were in despair, and God was merciful to us. And it was through Jesus being crushed on our behalf, and it was through His blood being spilt, that this morning we can take of the bread and be reminded we're not crushed, and our blood isn't spilt. But we are secure because of what He has done on our behalf, as undeserving as we were. And so you are welcome to stand and to sing. You need to sit and let the Spirit minister to you. The Lord's Supper is there for you to stand and take for those who are walking with Jesus. And there'll be some men and women in the back if you need to pray with them. But let's celebrate and rejoice the light has come. Father, this morning, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds. Lord, for those who are currently in darkness and in despair, God, that Your severe kindness would come upon them, that they would see their sin and their lack of ability to fix it and then be encouraged because, Jesus, You've done what we couldn't do. That they would hear You calling them and that You would rescue them this morning. Thank You for the miracle of salvation. God, for those of us um, who who might tend to be um, overly religious and believe that we're good, God, would You remind us of our desperate need for the light and that we would be humble servants. God, for those of us who have tasted and seen that You are good, would we celebrate and rejoice because You are faithful to Your character and You are merciful to Your people. And we can trust that. And Lord, as they waited 400 years and have seen You be faithful, God, we can wait and know that Your Word and Your promises will come true. You're coming for us. And You'll split the sky. And God, You're going to restore all things to the way they're meant to be. God, we can count on that. We ask that you would help us to trust it. In Jesus' name, amen.